Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the first of two talk episodes introducing you to the timeline of the Thirty Years' War. I nearly said Korean War there, but we are not in the Korean War, we are in the Thirty Years' War, and for the next month we are taking a break from the Korean War, which both pleases some people and displeases others, but then we'll be resuming as normal from the 18th of June, which is very exciting, because then we'll be doing an episode of the Korean War and an episode of the Thirty Years' War every week. Now, I use the word exciting to some people that may be terrifying and really quite insane. But in any case, here we are, and much like Frederick V of the Palatinate had to, we made our bed and now we have to lie in it. For those of you unaware of what a talk episode actually is, maybe you just came along to the When Diplomacy Fells podcast with the expectation that everything I did would be perfectly sane and quite normal. 
when I get in touch with Sean and when Sean and I occupy podcast space together, it's always informative. It's always on track. It's never going off into tangents. You'll never find us laughing hysterically about stupid things. And you will never ever find us making fun of one another about our pronunciation or the things that we occasionally get wrong. This of course is all baloney because we do all these things in spades. And talk episodes are really a chance for me to kind of, well for lack of a better term, let my goofy side out with my best friend. And while doing that I get to geek out over history so it's great fun. What what you'll see most of the time happen is a few monologues taking place and Sean commenting and asking questions. But in this case here, it's a little bit more broad because we're talking about the timeline of the Thirty Years' War rather than like a specific theme or issue or or war in question. I mean, of course, we're talking about the Thirty Years' War, but yeah, that's got a little bit more to it than some of the other wars we've covered in the past. We have covered wars in the past, of course, and I have done talk episodes with Sean in the past on specific wars. So maybe check out them if you're interested in hearing what we used to be like when we were talking in person. Because yes, indeed, unfortunately, although it doesn't make too much of a difference and hopefully you'll get used to the transition, Sean is still in the Netherlands. So we did this over Skype and we'll be doing all future conversations over Skype until Skype decides to do that third party update it's planning on doing, which will make recording from Skype really quite difficult. For the moment, though, I'm happy with how this went, and I'm happy with how the one after it went, and you can get both of them, because they'll be released pretty much at the same time. I should add, of course, as well, that it is our birthday today, when Diplomacy Fails is six years old, if you're listening to this on the day that it came out on the 18th of May. So that's pretty darn cool, if I do say so myself. And yes, this time, one year ago, we were unleashing the five weeks to run wild project on you guys so hopefully this is a little bit more digestible and a little less i don't know anxiety inducing or whatever the term is in any case i had a great time with sean and i hope that comes across in the episode if you would like to stick around to the end of this episode you'll hear a few outtakes so that is sometimes appealing to people you should know that the way that this talk episode two-parter is split up is that we talk in this episode about some background details and everything else. We, of course, do be fit. And then we go, we take the timeline up to about 1635, just before the French got involved. In the second talk episode, we pick the story up from 1635 with a little bit of background detail as well, and continue the story then to the Peace of Westphalia. So yeah, I'm very excited. The plan overall, although maybe I shouldn't even be saying this because... You know what I'm like with my plans, but in any case, the plan overall is to have one talk episode for every four actual episodes, which will hopefully split up the narrative a little bit and make it all a bit more kind of enjoyable. I should also add the talk episodes are only going to be done on the Thirty Years' War, so that should differentiate the Thirty Years' War a little bit and make it, I don't know, a bit bit more distinct, as if it wasn't distinct enough because we're talking about two completely different wars. But there you go, the style is going to be different and you should notice that. Any, anything else? I mean, there's nothing really else to talk about. The best way to do these talk episodes is to just kind of drop you in the middle of it. And we always start from a kind of coherent part of the story, so you won't be overwhelmed. I kind of, I don't know, like, you guys love these talk episodes, or you kind of like them, or you really don't like them. I have never come across someone who considers myself and Sean, like, totally insufferable. Some people don't like the talk episodes, but some people really do, so this is for those of you who have never heard them before, and also for those of you that, yeah, are quite big fans of ours. And in case you didn't get that memo that I've released before, 
Sean and I had fallen out for a while and we weren't on very good terms, but we recently made back up. So without too much hesitation, of course, we jumped right into making talk episodes just like old times. I'm really happy to have my best friend back in the allied camp, so to speak, and I'm really happy to, well, present this talk episode to you guys. It also helps to remind you and to remind me that even though I like to put on my hat of a serious historian, every now and then it's fun to just talk about history with your friends. I hope that you guys do talk about history with your friends, and I hope you would consider yourself a history friend to me. Anyway, before we get all emotional and start crying together about things that happened or did not happen in history, it's time to present this episode to you. So, the next voices you hear will be mine and Sean's over Skype. Back on the podcast, and my guest, for the first time in a very, very long time, is Sean. Say hello, Sean. Hello, everybody. Where Hello. are you? Where are you coming to us from, Sean? I am currently living in the Netherlands. I'm currently overlooking a canal with a gentleman and all of his friends in a boat. Five of them in a boat. Uh, the weather is currently 28 degrees in my room, which probably makes it about 25 degrees outside. Uh, and it is a roasting, glorious summer day in the middle of spring. Glad oh. to be here. Yeah, glad to have you. We have not done one of these for. For three years, it's nearly exactly three years since we did our talk episode just at the end of Britain Goes to War, would you believe? And that was... Remarkable. Yeah, that was remarkable as one word to describe it. It was great fun. Um, Otto von Raisley made an appearance and it was yes. really, oh. really good. But yeah, we're, uh, we, we were doing, doing different stuff. We, uh, we fell out, we made up and we're back together again and it's all wonderful. And now we're ready to talk some serious history, starting, of course, with the Thirty Years' War. But wait, Zachary, isn't there something we're forgetting? Well... Something something to do that we always do at the start of one of these talk episodes. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? <laughs> Beep it! <laughs> has yeah. to be, that has yeah. to be the take. <laughs> All right, yeah. Well, remember that time we tried to redo it and it was just so forced it didn't uh, work? Yeah, yeah way- no, that's true. That's true. It, it's way more natural to force it on people this uh, way. Yeah, no, that's that's also true. A, a little bit of, like, uh, uh, well, self-awareness goes a long way. Yes, yes. Yeah. And we're very self-aware at this very moment. So at this point, yeah. B is for... Blog at where you can go to uh, WDF Podcast at Blogspot. So, yeah, you can go there. And what you will find is... When Diplomacy Fails, blog has moved, and go join the party <laughs> elsewhere. And you can go there by clicking on this very handy little by clicking here button. And it will take you to Vassal State, which mm. is uh, hosted by Squarespace, I do believe. It is. It is indeed. How did you know? Is it just uh, that obvious? Yeah, no, uh, it's, uh, I think uh, I think you might have told me, Mr. Mr. Twomley. Yeah. You might have told me. That, I believe I did let that slip. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, that, that's grand. Yes, the, the blog is at the Vassal State. We moved to centralize everything around WDFpodcast.com because I thought, you know what? I'm paying for Squarespace. I might as well get everything all together, which is what I did with the shop as well. The same idea. I just centralized everything and put it all together. And yeah, all the archive is there. If you wanted to mess around, Sean, you'd find a whole host of stuff there. So 
I'm actually seeing the last sort of things that you did on the block. You can see the old style of when diplomacy fails, and I suppose, as a historian, you're keenly fascinated by what things used to look like. <laughs> Even when it's my own blog, yeah. I think, yeah, that was, that was only peaks. It's all, it's all gone downhill from there, so... Ah, well. Anyway, B is for blog, The Vassal State. Just search for The Vassal State or go to wdfpodcast.com forward slash of The Vassal State. E is for... Email where you can reach Zach directly at wdfpodcast at hotmail.com. Yes, I still have not upgraded to Gmail because I'm stubborn like that, even though I get like three spam emails every day from John George from Nigeria telling me about John George from Nigeria. I just took the Elector of Saxony's name and put him into Nigeria. That's great. Do you you know, I I have a friend... Who, whose name, we call him Alan, but his actual birth name is King George. And it's, what? it's, it's hilarious. I can't remember. I think he's from Uganda or something. Oh, yeah. It's, no, no, I'm, I'm being deadly serious. <laughs> he goes to my church and, and I'm like, Alan, is your first name actually King George? And he's like, yeah. Wow. Wow. So, yeah, no, I, if, if someone was named after a prince electorate of Germany, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> Imagine how hard it would be for him to apply for a job. He'd be like, my name what... is King George. You're like, yeah, right, get out. <laughs> I think that's why he goes by Alan, Max. Yeah, Alan, like, not even George. Just yeah. call me Alan. I love it. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, yeah, F is for Facebook. Uh, I actually have no idea what the Facebook address is. I'm sure it's when diplomacy fails at facebook.com. Or well, is it just if you go to Facebook and then you search when diplomacy fails, it'll show up. The latter is probably the easier. You're not really doing Facebook. Are you really doing Facebook that much these I, days? I do do Facebook, but I literally go on there just to correct people for their political opinions. Oh. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Say that always not, ends well. Not, not in a bad way, but it's like... If I see someone posting something that's really blatantly silly-like. The whole point of that spiel is that we do not just have a Facebook page. We also have a Facebook group now. And unlike the first time I tried to set up a Facebook group, there's more than seven people in it. There is, in fact, over 400 people. So by all means, check out the When Diplomacy Fails Facebook group. Looked it up now and When Diplomacy Fails podcast. It's got five stars from 44 reviews. It's got 2.5,000 people following it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, and I am also one of those people. You are indeed. Uh, yeah, and it looks like it's active enough. It's got. Yeah, I think and... if you guys want history to show up on your Facebook, this is definitely something to follow. Definitely something to follow, and we have big plans for it in the future. We have, we've recently signed up to a special kind of uh, what, whatever you would call it, something that streamlines all your social media stuff. So through that, I'm able to make Facebook and my Twitter and stuff. More interesting, and not just me talking about things that I would like to do in the future. There's actual historical content on it. And yeah, it's great. You should definitely go and look for it. And even if you find the Facebook page, you'll be able to click on Join Group, and that'll take you to the Facebook group. So, And just so that you're not thrown, uh, it doesn't actually say when diplomacy fails in the thumbnail. It says the eventful year 1956, which is a nice little uh, tip of the hat to the Patreons podcast, which uh, Zach is running on the side. Yes, indeed. Running on the side is correct. And funny you should mention that because I recently had to admit defeat in that regard because I had released the teaser episodes for that in their own separate podcast feed. Now, anyone else would say, Zach, that can't possibly have a positive outcome because you're based in When Diplomacy Fails. Why would you start a new podcast feed with teaser episodes? 
And that would be a fairly reasonable thing to say. But I thought in my infinite wisdom that by setting up a separate podcast feed, it would just be... I mean, I did it to please my OCD senses, and I also did it because I just was completely in denial of the fact that it could not work. And here I am now having to backpedal and basically delete that feed and put those teaser episodes failed feed, so okay because it's not picking up any momentum whatsoever i've got like less yeah. than 10 percent of the downloads for those episodes oh, that i would normally dear. get so we're let's not mention the war and uh, move on to <laughs> move on to i i is for uh, itunes where yes i quickly look up itunes and there you can go uh, download the podcast for yourself. You can rate it. You can review it. You can subscribe to it. So it'll always get downloaded straight away as soon as an episode comes out. And you can go through the whole back catalogue, which if I scroll through it now is... God, I'm still going. Is <laughs> You'll be going for over a while. Over 300 items. Yeah, it's so big they don't even show them all there in the, in the library, do you know? That's really? How, that's wow. how big it is, because iTunes only displays 300 episodes. There, You'll still get them all, you just won't be able to see them all when you're scrolling through. Okay, wow. Mm-hmm, well, mm-hmm. Uh, and let's see, the customer rating here is 5 stars from 332 ratings, so... Very well done, Mr. Twomley. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. And do you know what all those people did on iTunes? Do you know what they probably did after making a review? Do you know what they probably did? They probably told somebody. Oh, my goodness. Oh, (laughs) I bet they went out and they said, oh, oh, dear stranger on the street, dear fish in the canal. Oh, dear lady on the far side who's giving me a weird look. (laughs) (laughs) Go look at, go listen to this history podcast. It's fantastic. (laughs) <laughs> still more to go from there but yeah yeah absolutely do that tell people yeah, no tell truth. at one stage we were so desperate we just said tell anything not even anyone just anything that is probably the counterintuitive to tell things that don't really have life because you know anyway the, the great thing about be fit is that it doesn't even quite cover all the different ways that you can support, get in contact with, and inquire about this podcast. We also have a newsletter. We are also on Patreon. We are also on Twitter. And we have a website. So all those different ways to go and find When Diplomacy Fails. But, gotta... well, but I, I don't think we can add them to be fit. No, they really don't fit. I think I, that yeah. we just add those little notes in just at the end very, very briefly and keep be fit as its own. I mean, I, I do that for two reasons. First of all, it seems like we're always adding new things for When Diplomacy Fails. And secondly, be fit's just too iconic. I just couldn't change it at this really stage. really is. At this yeah. point, if we didn't do be fit, it, there'd be uproar. There would be uproar. And anyway, speaking of uproar, we better get into the actual podcast or there will be uproar. Yes, I suppose they can't listen to us babbling on for a half hour and not actually have some meat to this podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good point. Well, you've you've managed to track in a very handy timeline for me, so I'm looking at it right now. So in case you I, all thought... I literally I put in Google Thirty Years War timeline and the beautiful thing gave me exactly what I was looking for. So yeah, I, I will say Google knows everything at this point. You know? Yes, it does. It certainly does. Well, I guess that we start then. The Thirty Years' War fought between 1618 to 1648 began with the second defenestration of Prague on the 23rd of May, 1618, which it is the 400th anniversary of this year, Sean. Did you know? I did not. That is... Uh... That is a really, really long time ago. <laughs> God, yes, I'm is. trying to think. Yeah. Wow. Yes, it is. Yeah. 
There you go. And and it, that's one of the main reasons I wanted to remaster the Thirty Years War and, and release oh, it on its own podcast. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, so it, it, it began with the second defenestration of Prague and it ended with the Peace of Westphalia. A nice, tidy three decades of conflict bookended by two big significant events, but of course, in between then and before and slightly after, other things happened too. And because we're all about context, we're going to talk about the years that came before. So that's what we're going to do now. Any thoughts at all on the Thirty Years' War before we talk about it? Gustavus Godolphus, or uh, how do you say his name? How, how does his name go? Gustavus. Gustavus Adolphus. Yeah, yeah, you nearly got it. You nearly got it. Gustavus Adolphus. Yeah. Who who founded the city of Gothenburg? Otherwise, so, uh, known as, otherwise known as Gothenburg to those of us that yeah no. don't speak. So, Whatever that was. I think it was uh, Swedish, but I think they don't even say it. I think they really, like, if you're from Gothenburg, you say Gothenburg. Like, you really, like, uh, yeah, you really pronounce it totally out of the English mindset. Like, yeah, totally different language. Oh, well, I find that offensive as someone who speaks English. Well, no, well, I've seen the statue of him, and, uh, and I've, you know, obviously, having gone through the Thirty Years' War... And mm-hmm. the innovation he brought to warfare, you know, oh, that's yeah. definitely worth uh, noting. Yeah, sorry, I would, I would just say, I think he's the uh, one of the biggest lichpins in in the Thirty Years' War. Oh, he definitely is, and you'd be dead right there, like Gustavus Adolphus. I mean, there, there's so much we could, we could spend, we could make an entire podcast just on him. I mean, even before he intervened in the Thirty Years' War in 1630 thereby turning it into like an international conflict he'd been fighting wars with poland with denmark and yeah. all sorts what i found uh, other other notable mentions for the coming podcast of uh, for the coming talk is also the the involvement of the turks the ottoman turks yes. uh, and their their little squabble with the poles i i i am obviously using uh, exaggeration it they did actually go to war but uh <laughs> Just yes. a squabble. Just a squabble, you know, <laughs> nothing nothing too serious. Nothing on the scale of mm. Sweden joining the war. Yes, yes indeed. Well, let's start where most people would begin to date the Thirty Years' War. The fifteen, the late 1590s is normally where people started. Jeffrey Parker is a historian who's written extensively on the Thirty Years' War, and his book Europe in Crisis is one which most people will have read if they've learned or want to learn anything about the Thirty Years' War, and that starts in 1598. And he starts it in 1598 because that is the year when a peace treaty was signed between France and Spain, and it's also the year that, well, conflict seems to be ongoing in Sweden, and everyone's kind of thinking of sorting out their old wars, because at this point the Dutch, the English, and the French were all at war with Spain. They're going to sort those wars out, and then they're going to uh, be at peace for a little while, and then everything hits the fan again, of course. But that's that's normally where people start the narrative. So, what, yeah. what, what, do, you, what do you think about... Because we talked about the Dutch Revolt. We did an episode on the Dutch Revolt years ago now. Yes. Uh, mostly because of your inherent Dutchness. But within that, I don't think we went all that far i think we mainly just covered the late 1500s so is there anything you can remember like sort of along the lines of what the dutch were doing at this point or anything like that specifically what the yeah no it doesn't <laughs> feel like a test god let's see uh what were the dutch doing in uh well aside from uh living in dikes and 
sending ships out to go trading places. Well, I, I don't know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, well, the, the, the main point that I was getting well, at well, there... The, the point you were getting at was probably that they managed to get it independent from Spain. I think that's that's where you were... They managed yes. to get their William of Orange set up and their uh, unification of the seven provinces into the... Into the was it the Republic of the Netherlands or the Kingdom of the Netherlands that fell? It, it was Netherlands? their it was their Republic at that stage. It wouldn't be the Kingdom until after the Napoleonic Wars because yeah. that's just the way it was. I'm afraid, and that, that was when the family, the House of Orange, was actually made into a monarchy. Before then, they were sort of being monarchical, but not quite getting there yet. But in any case, the the main thing I wanted to ask there that was a very roundabout way of getting to the the real crux of the issue, which was that in 1609 there was this thing signed between Spain and the Dutch called the Twelve Years' Truce. And as you can tell by by the name of it, it lasted 12 years, so it expired in 1621. And 1621 is really the year when some historians think that the Thirty Years' War, it it didn't last in its self-contained German box for very long, let's just say, because all the different powers had some kind of point, some kind of bone to pick with what was going on in the Holy Roman Empire and in the rest of Europe. So once the 12 years truce expired in 1621, that's when things all kind of hit the fan in a very big way. But between 1609 and 1621, the Dutch and the Spanish were actually at peace. And one of the terms of that peace was that the Spanish had to recognize the Dutch as an independent state, which obviously was a bit painful for the Spanish because they'd been fighting against that very concept for, I think, over 30 years at that point. Um, But the reason why it's interesting is because when people are looking at the situation in Germany in 1618 and they look at the Bohemian Revolt, which was what started the whole Thirty Years' War thing in the first place, when people look at that and they're like, well, how did the Thirty Years' War become the Thirty Years' War? How did it go from this revolt in Bohemia, from these Bohemian Protestants throwing their Catholic Habsburg masters out the window. How did that become the international conflict that it became? A lot of the reason for that is because of the things that had happened in the years before. And Mm. that's why in in the podcast series, the 30 Years War series that we're obviously doing right now, and also the 30 Years book that I have coming out in November, we have to look at the background, cheap pop there, cheap plug, and we have to look at the background that, that came before because we don't look at the context and we just drop ourselves into 1618. How are we going to understand why the Bohemians did what they did? Yeah, We're not going to know why the Dutch and Spanish went to war or why they were at peace and all that kind of stuff. I think it's also very interesting to to note the uh, the obviously the, the religious tensions, but the beginnings have changed for that. You see the French changing sides just simply to to you know go against the grain of the Hasburg rule. Yeah, uh, and uh, I thought that was really interesting that they would they would you know it, it, obviously w- would it be better to be Catholic? Would it be better to be Protestant? No, it would be better if the Hasburgs weren't here. And yeah, I think, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, I think it's it shows a change in tone in this in this Thirty Years' War. That's a good point. Yeah, and that's that's why some people think of the Thirty Years' War. They often try to call it like, oh, it was a religious war, but it wasn't really just a religious war. There was phases where the conflict was religiously motivated. But when the likes of France or even with Sweden coming in, Sweden teamed up with. With Catholic France, Protestant Sweden, Protestant Netherlands, Catholic France teamed up against Catholic Habsburgs, Catholic Bavaria, like sometimes there was Protestant German princes thrown in there as well. So it's hard to kind of put everything into a box. But yeah, that's where some people think that the kind of the idea of realpolitik began when the French 
and Cardinal Richelieu in particular, who was leading France in the late 1620s, 1630s, they think that Richelieu kind of spearheaded the idea of not caring necessarily about the religious persuasion of your ally, more the political inclinations of your ally, and if your ally can right. help you out, and where hmm. your ally is positioned strategically and all that jazz. I but, see, okay. Yeah. Very good, very good. <clears throat> yeah, but it, it had even been done earlier on, because... In the in the I think it was fifteen ninety, King Henry the Fourth had converted from Protestantism to Catholicism purely on the basis of he knew that he would not be accepted as King of France by most of Catholic powers if he was Protestant. So he converted to Catholicism and the way he yeah. put it was he said he said Paris is worth a mass. So by doing that he solved a lot of his problems and as a former Protestant he was sympathetic to the Huguenots, who were the French Protestants and quite numerous in France already. And once he was assassinated in 1610, things gradually went a bit downhill for the Pro- Protestants in France. But we can talk about that later on. Yeah, the uh, the, the thing we I think we need to talk about is Frederick V, the elector of the Palatinate. What do you know about Frederick V of the Palatinate, John? Do you want me to remind you what what you actually said when we when we did a thirty years war talk episode like four or five years ago now? Well, yeah, do go ahead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was something along the lines of Frederick the Fifth as a Palatinate sucks because his lands are all like disconnected. Look at those crappy towns he owns; they're all disconnected from one another. How the hell is he ever going to get anyone to follow him? And then I was like, "But Sean," and you were like, "No, no, seriously, all he has is like these separated towns." And they're not even connected to one another. How does he even do that? Does he go from one to the other? Is there a bridge? And I was like, Sean, I don't think it really matters. And you're like, no, someone needs to explain this. <laughs> you were quite insistent that it wouldn't really work. I was just listening to it the other day. That's how to I To be fair, I still think it wouldn't work. Like, they didn't have Google. Like, yeah. How, like, if he wanted to send a message, it's not like he, he has to cross everybody's borders. Like, if this True. was a civilization game one person closes their borders and he's stuck wherever he is. Not only know? that, yeah, one, one person closes their borders and then just refuses to talk to you for 200 years. That's normally yeah. what happens to me in Civ. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but th- that that actually brings up a good point. Because his lands were disconnected, he had to be on good terms with the people that were around him. That's and very true. not only that, but the way Germany was at this point, the way the Holy Roman Empire was, you could have five or six small princes who were not small in, in like physical size, small as in their domains were small. Well, but they were also con- considerably shorter in that yes, period of they time. Were. <laughs> <laughs> just to make it interesting, just so we can't just just make a clean ruling there. But yeah, no. the, <laughs> shut up. the uh, The whole point was that he had to talk to these people, and they had to talk to him. And on top of that, one of the powers that he had to talk to was the Dutch, because I don't know if you have a map of the Thirty Years' War lined up there, but yeah, if you did have a map of it there, you'd see how important the Elector Palatine's lands were, because he was in a very strategically important position. Because if the Spanish wanted to reach the Dutch, they would have to cross through a portion of his lands, which meant that they would have to be able to like be on good terms with him. And you unlikely that Catholic Spain is going to be on very good terms with Calvinist Protestant Frederick V, who is the leader of the Protestant Union of Protestant princes that are worried about what the Catholics are doing. So because of that, it creates a little bit of tension, but it also brings us back to the point of the Dutch and the Dutch war with the Spanish and how these things are connected. So 
it's important to bear that in mind how these little bits of land, even though they look weak because they are not tied together and they're not pleasing to us like modern states would be, they were still very important. And it was considered like not that abnormal, mainly because of inheritance and marriage and all that kind of thing. And the German right, yeah. the German tradition of parceling up your lands to your different sons when like say a father had four sons, his lands would be separated into four. And with that, that, that wasn't the case everywhere, but it was a case in some places and explains the really odd names of, of certain places like Baden and Hesse like, could be split up into four different ones. So you had Baden-Baden, you had Baden-Dorlach, you had other like like four different types of Baden and they were all named from the town that they were in, but also the province that they were in. And it just gets a bit complicated and convoluted after a while, so... The revolt in Bohemia, 1618, throw the people out the windows, Bohemia's up in revolt, and then it's like, now what? And the big the big issue isn't so much isn't so much that they like need someone to lead their revolt so much as they need a king to lead their revolt. It's not just like, oh, we need a military leader, because Bohemia was a kingdom. And one of the things that they did by throwing the throwing the Habsburgs out the window was they also deposed their king, who was Ferdinand, who was also about to be the Holy Roman Emperor. In 1619, he'd become Holy Roman Emperor, as far as I remember. But either way, by doing that, then they were short of a king. And that was where the Elector Palatine came in. And for various reasons, the Elector Palatine agreed to become the King of Bohemia, mostly because he thought that he could rely on the alliances that he had made with the Dutch and with his father-in-law, the King of England. He was James I and James VI. Turned out in the end that those friends weren't very good friends at all. And he subsequently lost the crown in 1620 after the loss at the Battle of White Mountain in November 1620. And... In November 1620, then, when Frederick had been defeated, you might be thinking, oh, well, that's the end of that then. Frederick's defeated. All he has to do now is say that he's sorry to Ferdinand and all that kind of thing. But there were several problems with that. The first was that Frederick didn't want to say sorry because he had taken the Bohemian crown and just because he'd been defeated didn't mean that he thought that he was wrong. The second problem was that in order to fight this war against Frederick, the emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor Ferdinand II, he didn't exactly have a whole load of resources of his own, so he had to lean on certain people, in particular Maximilian of Bavaria. But Ferdinand couldn't pay Maximilian, so what he did instead was he pledged several different portions of land to Maximilian instead of pay. So the idea was Maximilian would hold these lands, and then he'd either take pay from them, or he'd hold them until Ferdinand paid them back. But another interesting thing that Ferdinand did was that he gave the Elector Palatine, he gave Frederick V's electoral title to the Duke of Bavaria. And by doing that, he really muddled up the constitution. But he also kind of booked himself into a corner because he promised his main military ally in Europe this huge, huge concession and couldn't really backpedal on it because if he did that, then he wouldn't have any major military ally anymore. That is just the stupidest thing I think I've ever heard. <laughs> My goodness. What an idiot. Yeah. It's it like was... I'm going to fight a war just to defeat some, some. let's see, literally just to crush a, a, a rebellion for two years. Yep. And in exchange, I'm going to mess up my entire country. Mm -hmm. I just, ah. Uh, yep. 
You know, sometimes it's like just swallow your pride, pride, mate. You, you got thrown out a window. They don't want you as their king. Just let it go. <laughs> yeah. No. But the the main reason why Frederick could not let it go ties into the way the Holy Roman Empire was set up with the Electoral College. The reason why I keep on calling Frederick V the Elector Palatine was because in his position, Frederick had a vote like six other people in the Holy Roman Empire. He had a vote to be able to decide who the next Holy Roman Emperor would be. And at this point, it was quite sensitive because of the Reformation and the fact that the Holy Roman Empire had splintered between Protestant and Catholic. You had three Protestant electors, and then you had four Catholic electors. And one elector was the King of Bohemia. And because Ferdinand had been the King of Bohemia, it was four to three in favour of the Catholics. But as soon as Frederick took it, it became four to three in favour of the Protestants. So Ah. this this meant that the Protestants would be able to theoretically elect a Protestant elector. And it also meant that the Habsburgs... The Habsburg family, supreme over all European institutions, that's a massive exaggeration, but that they would be supplanted from the position of Holy Roman Emperor next time there was an election. And this was, in a big way, this was Frederick V's goal, because he believed that the Habsburgs were unconstitutionally trying to infringe the liberties of the Germans and he wanted to get rid of the Habsburgs and not even necessarily replace them with himself for a while believe it or not the Duke of Bavaria before he acted the way that he did the Duke of Bavaria was nominated to be a candidate for Holy Roman Emperor and so was the elector of Saxony John George so it was all it's all connected none of these people acted purely in religious motivations there was constitutional reasons as well that's what right. when people say that the war was constitutional that's what they mean it's to do with the electoral college and the way that the the way that the so holy roman empire was what set you up. could say is actually frederick played his cards right and ferdinand played into the trap yes it's, in it's a really way what, hmm. yeah and and frederick i mean to a degree frederick was seen as someone who had disturbed the peace but a lot of a lot of people like for example the protestant union the union of german princes they dissolved themselves in 1621 because they were afraid of the habsburgs and they were afraid of the basically being taken over so they surrendered to the habsburgs and said please don't hurt us let's just let us be neutral and one of my one of my themes in my book my book is called my book on the 30 years war was called for for god or the devil and that comes from a quote from gustavus adolphus who said that uh, something i'm paraphrasing here but somewhere along the lines of if you are for god you must fight with me and if you're for the devil i'll fight against you there's no third way so there's no neutral party because there's too much at stake we're talking about 1621 1621 is an important year because that's when the spanish of all people come up the rhine and start to take over the palatinate the elector palatine's former lands and once they do that the dutch feel quite threatened because the dutch are about to be back at war with the spanish and lo and behold then in april 1621 the war between the spanish and dutch is back on and then the spanish are holding parts of the palatinate but the bavarians don't really like that because the bavarians don't want the spanish to be stuck in germany and the bavarians want to have frederick's electoral title and they want to have his electoral lands. so what ends up happening is that the two of them pretty much do their own thing and carve up the platinate between themselves so poor old frederick v loses all of his lands to the spanish and to the bavarians and he loses his electoral title as well 
And this is all going on while Frederick V and his wife Elizabeth are in exile in The Hague. But yes. what, I, what I find, you know, Frederick, they've taken pretty much everything from him, but all it's done is validated his vast Catholic conspiracy well, that's theory. The like, yeah. <laughs> look all at of how... this is happening, and all he can do is, look what I said 10 years ago was right. Yeah, like, uh-huh. look how eager Ferdinand was to replace me with his Catholic mates. Look how eager the Spanish were to come up and take over my lands. Look how easy it was to get rid of me. Like, he could, if he did it to me, I'm an elector. I'm I'm second only to the emperor in terms of rank in the Holy Roman Empire. If he could do it to me, lowly German princes, imagine what he could do to you. And in in a big way, he turned out to be right in that respect, because... Once Ferdinand had a taste of success in in this early stage, he kind of bulldozed over everything. And especially the next part we'll talk about when the Danish intervene and that goes up in smoke, Frederick feels even more validated to keep going and pushing even further. The Dutch and the Spanish uh, are, are back at war from 1621. The Bavarians and the Spanish had taken over the Palatinate, so the, like... The only thing that's really happening is the Dutch and Spanish fighting each other. But everyone in Germany are starting to... Well, everyone in Germany that isn't allied to the Habsburgs and isn't Catholic starts to get a bit concerned that Ferdinand might be getting a bit too big for his boots. And the 1620s roll on and these German princes in what's called the South Saxon Circle, if I remember that correctly. So kind of just below Denmark, the kind of German... The part of Germany below Denmark... A lot of that land was tied to the King of Denmark by marriage. He wanted it for his sons and all that kind of thing. He was very concerned that the Habsburgs were going to keep on moving up towards like, towards the Baltic and just re-Catholicize all of Germany. He did not want that at all. And another thing that happened around this time was that uh, uh, the, the people that were fighting Ferdinand's wars were... The, the Catholic League under the command of Count Tilly. Count Tilly was a great soldier and he was very, very talented. And this whole, this league was tied to Maximilian of Bavaria. And it was how Maximilian of Bavaria managed to leverage concessions out of the Holy Roman Emperor because he said, look, I'm your only military ally. You basically have to do what I say or else you won't have any friends. But something interesting which starts to happen now is you see the rise of this guy, this Catholic bohemian nobleman called Albrecht of Wallenstein. And Wallenstein is very important because he gained a whole load of lands and a whole load of wealth out of what had happened in Bohemia because he basically took a load of stuff from Protestants that had been uh, exiled or killed or what have you. And once he did that, he, he was wealthy enough to not only offer loans to the emperor, but also to raise an army for the emperor. And he was a soldier himself, so he wrote, he created a private army for Ferdinand. So you have these two big armies. You have one commanded by Wallenstein, which is loyal only to Ferdinand. And then you have another commanded by Count Tilly, which is loyal, supposedly, to the Catholic cause. And... Under this combined pressure, there's no way that the Danes could possibly win. But the Danish king is worried about his rights and all this kind of thing. And he feels pressured too. And another thing, he's promised all these subsidies and and support by France, by England, by the Dutch, which never materializes in the end. And of course, Frederick V is cheering him on from exile in The Hague, which I don't know if that made any real difference. But it meant he had the moral support of Protestantism. And I'm sure that played some kind of role in his decision. So he intervenes, and then in August 1626, his forces are defeated in the Battle of Luther by K- 
Count Tilly, and it's one of Count Tilly's greatest victories. It pretty much smashes Danish resistance, and it enables the Catholic Habsburg armies to advance towards the Baltic. And by doing that, and by essentially destroying everything in their way, the King of Denmark retreats to Copenhagen, and he can't be reached because the Habsburgs don't have any navy. And what ends up happening is Wallenstein negotiates a fairly favourable peace with the Danes. And the main thing it does, obviously, is that it takes Denmark out of the war. And it means that there's nobody now to challenge the Habsburgs. Nobody is at war with the Habsburgs, and the Habsburgs have a free run of the place. All they have to do is, well, it seems, march across the rest of Germany and implement the Counter-Reformation as far as the eye can see. So, what do you think of that, John? Well, I think that was fantastic. And uh, as you can see, there's a pause in the war, which mm-hmm. I wonder why you would have a pause in a war that lasted 30 years. Hmm. Mm-hmm. But yes, so I suppose the war from ended between 1628 and 1629, but then would kick back off in spectacular fashion. Yes, and one of the main reasons as well why it seemed as though there was a bit of a lull in the fighting is that Ferdinand, the Hullierman Emperor, was busy kind of getting something for the fact that he was so supremely victorious. And this this victory trophy that he had was called the Edict of Restitution. And this was a it was a big victory for himself as a militant Catholic raised by the Jesuits, but it was also a big victory for the Counter-Reformation because it turned back the clock to several years. I don't know the exact date, but... It's uh, 1552 when the monasteries were secularized. Wow, okay, thank you for that. And I'm, that... I'm, I'm literally, just in case people are thinking I'm intelligent for some reason, no, I'm, I'm staring <laughs> at the page with it open there. So. Oh, well, that's great, okay. <laughs> so, well, because of that, then, it, it returned a load of lands that were once owned by the Catholic Church, but had subsequently been taken by Protestants and Calvinists and everything else. It returned all these lands back to the Catholic Church. So suddenly the Catholics take a whole load of stuff back that they had lost and it's a big it's a big turning back of the clock and Ferdinand's very excited about it back to the Catholics but it also disrupted a lot of things that had just been kind of allowed to run by the wayside there was more elements to it than that of course okay as well. okay but right. it, it, what the main thing was the land part of it and it, it also brought in a new element of kind of Catholic triumphalism kind of intolerance and all that kind of thing and there was a lot of talk about kind of expunging Protestantism and getting rid of Calvinism as well, which was right. technically, technically Calvinism was illegal because it had never been legalized in the Augsburg Confession in the 1550s. Whereas but, Lutherism was, because yes, it, it had yeah. been around back then. Yeah, at that stage it was around, so it was okay. But So it, this, the long and short of it is, we don't need to get into details, but what we do need to know is that the Edict of Restitution makes everyone very, very unhappy. And because of that, the likes of Protestant powers such as Sweden suddenly has a very, very good reason to intervene. A casus belli. Yes, indeed. And not only that, but you might be thinking, oh, well, Denmark had that too. Denmark had a reason to intervene, and Denmark thought that they were doing it for the Protestant powers and all that kind of thing. And they had grand hopes, and their king thought that it would be really great and everything. And to that, I will say yes, but the difference is the Danes couldn't fight a battle properly, whereas the Swedes were led by Gustavus Adolphus, who had been fighting against the Poles 
and the Danes for the last nearly 20 years, and the Russians as well, don't forget them. And he had developed his own several pioneering methods of fighting battles. Now, in later episodes, we are going to do a talk episode on 17th century warfare, just to let you know, Sean, where we'll go into these things in more detail. And Cannons I know we'll get... with wheels. I mean, yes. revolutionary. Cannons with wheels. Gosh. And, and with horses. And oh, wheels. Lord. <laughs> I know. Slow down. And he also taught people how to reload lying down. What a concept. Yeah, Imagine genius. That. But yeah, we'll, we'll obviously get into those details. Get into those details in later episodes. Episodes that in later talk episodes, but for now, what you need to know is that Gustavus Adolphus was a very significant king. Now, he wasn't invincible, he had lost his share of battles before, and at this point, Count Tilly had not lost a single battle, so Count Tilly was seen as the kind of savior of the Catholic League and the Catholic cause in general. But as we said before, Count Tilly was associated with. Maximilian of Bavaria, because he was the Catholic League leader and he was leading the Habsburg armies for sure, but it was Albrecht of Wallenstein who was Ferdinand's kind of personal mercenary, you could say. And at one point, Wallenstein had raised an army of 100,000 men to deal with the Danes. And this was not obviously either a good thing for everyone who had to suffer. Wallenstein's army staying and living off their lands, but it was also very abnormal for the time because armies never normally reached that size. Because obviously you not can't since support the ancient era. Yeah, you can't support an army that size. It's just not possible, and especially with all these different princes living so closely together. So purely by having an army of that size, Wallenstein forced forced several princes to pick a side, which comes back to what I was talking about earlier, about mm. it's like for God or the devil. You don't have a choice. There is no neutral. There's no third way. You have to either be with us or you're against us. And one of these key moments that happened, there was this event on the Baltic called the Siege of Stralsund, which is a not very well-known event, but which really played a very big role in persuading European opinion that the Habsburgs really had gotten far too ambitious for their own good. Far too big for their boots. Exactly, yeah. Now that, this was in 1628, but the reason why it's important is because that was when the Danes and the Swedes, who had been bitter enemies and a, a good amount of Scottish participation as well, believe it or not, they all got involved, and th this city on the Baltic was supposed to be... Now, Wallenstein was leading the armies in, in this part of the conflict, but this was supposed to be the beginning of the Habsburg efforts to set up a navy on the Baltic Sea. And if they did oh. that, yeah, like the the, in, the uncontrollable ambitions of the Habsburgs, Frederick's, Frederick Pal the Elector Palatine is just being like, I told you so, guys, I told you, you wouldn't listen, they're going to take over the world. But at, at this point, like, Siege of Stralsund, trying to set up a navy was just a bridge too far. I mean, they tried a whole load of different things the Habsburgs did. Wallenstein, who was in control of the siege, even tried to contact the Hanseatic League, which was a conglomeration of several different states that had significantly dipped in importance since the 1500s. But he tried to basically purchase a navy off of them, mainly so that he could defeat the Danes. Because like we said earlier on, the King of Denmark had retreated to Copenhagen. And since the Danes had a navy and the Habsburgs did not, he could just sit there and be like, yeah, what are you going to do? And Wallenstein and Count Tilly would be like, well, we can't do anything. So because of that, the war would keep on going for a very long time. But as we also said, Wallenstein offered the King of Denmark a good deal to make peace. And make peace he did in 
like about mid sixteen twenty eight. So while the siege of Stralsund was going on, he made him an offer he couldn't refuse, as they say. So because of that, the the war between Denmark and and the Habsburgs came to an end. But the siege of Stralsund continued, and this was where Sweden started to get very heavily involved. And this really is where the war starts to become super internationalized for several reasons, mostly because we talked before about the Swedes being at war with several different countries, and one of these was Poland-Lithuania. And at this point, Poland-Lithuania, the Polish king, Sigismund III, was tied by marriage. I believe he married the Holy Roman Emperor's sister, I think. And because he did that, he was an ally of the Habsburgs. He was also raised by the Jesuits as well, so he was a militant Catholic. What he had been doing for the last several years was constantly sending armed detachments of soldiers against the Swedes and just just bothering them, not not properly making any significant gains for the Poles, but just kind of stopping nice. Sweden from properly getting involved in the war in Germany. Because there was a point in 1624-25 when Sweden looked like it was going to get involved with Denmark, which would have been kind of unheard of almost. <laughs> the two so, of them being allies. Yeah, wow. I know. Imagine that concept. But there was a while that that looked like it was going to happen. And then Gustavus Adolphus, he wasn't offered terms that he preferred. So he said, basically, the long and short of it was, he said, all right, then I'll just go back to being at war with Poland. And because of that, he was at war with Poland. And while he, so long as he was at war with Poland, there was no way that he was going to be able to be at war with Germany too. So mm. it, that, that went on throughout the late 1620s. It kept the Swedes occupied. And this this seems like a very long tangent, but the reason why it's important is because all of this stuff is connected, and we can see exactly how connected it is. Like, the episodes, the diplomacy in the late 1620s, early 1630s, is fascinating, because the French are very heavily involved, the English are very heavily involved, the Russians are even involved as well. And to cut a long story short, because I don't want to get too bogged down in the details... The Swedes and the Russians make a deal so that when Sweden makes peace with Poland, Russia will attack Poland so that Poland can't attack Sweden. And at the same time, the French send diplomats to mediate a peace between Sweden and Poland so that Sweden can get involved in the Holy Roman Empire. Well, it was a long way of saying it, but you're very right. Yeah. <laughs> There's only one way to say it, and that's the long way, in my opinion. But there you go. Yeah, so so because of that, because of all those interconnected little parts, it's kind of, it's almost impossible to just cover the Thirty Years' War as like a singular event, like a constitutional war or religious war, because it becomes so many different things, and it, it mutates out of its Pandora's box into so many different little nitty-gritty bits. But in any case, 1630, the Swedes that's... intervene. It, and in spectacular fashion, cutting a swath right through Germany, fighting his way to Munich. Just what, what, a, what an incredible, what an incredible run. Yeah, oh, he, he had a good run. Place. He did have a good run. And one, one of the interesting things as well, to take it all full circle, is that at one point he was joined by the Elector Palatine, Frederick V, who had been in exile and who people were like, oh, you started all this. And he'd be like, I didn't start this. This was all the Holy Roman Emperor is doing. But Frederick V was delighted that Gustavus Adolphus had come along and started to defeat the Habsburgs heavily over the next little while. Like, obviously, Frederick had been holding out for a miracle all this time and a chance to get his lands back. 
And when Gustavus just went on an absolute tear throughout Germany and defeated the Habsburgs in the Battle of Breitenfeld in 1631, I believe it was August or sometime in autumn 1631, when he did that, Habsburg ability to resist pretty much collapsed and suddenly the Duke of Bavaria's lands were open. So Gustavus Adolphus toppled down to Munich, the capital of Maximilian of Bavaria's lands, and who should go with him but Frederick V, the man whose lands and whose title had been stolen by the Elector of Bavaria, who was now the Elector of Bavaria. He used to just be the Duke, but because he had stolen Frederick's electoral title, he was now the Elector of Bavaria. And it's all like things are coming full circle. Not only do Gustavus Adolphus and Frederick V enter Bavaria pretty much together in sync, but it's hugely symbolic. And at one point, if you can believe this, Frederick V and Gustavus Adolphus play tennis on Maximilian Bavaria's tennis court. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. Just to rub it in. I, rub I'm, it in. Sure, I'm sure he was aware that they were playing tennis as well. Yeah. I'm sure they made sure that he was aware. <laughs> he also, uh, Frederick also had a bone to pick with Maximilian for other reasons. One of them being, I mean, obviously he took all his lands and his title and everything, but he also took a load of his artwork and a load of his a load of his cannon and everything. So after all this stuff had been stolen from him, Frederick pretty much stole it back and tried to bring it back to the Palatinate. But the Spanish were still occupying portions of the Palatinate and they had to be ejected. And this is where the French start to become a bit angsty because if the Swedes are going to start getting into conflict with the with the Spanish, then odds are they'll probably need help of some kind because things could escalate and you don't want Spain to be on, at war with several at several fronts because then they could get overwhelmed. So Cardinal Richelieu starts to get very angsty and starts to get very eager to kind of become involved in the war from the early 1630s onwards. And then, as soon as it all begins and is so incredibly significant and stunningly successful the Swedish successes abruptly come to an end. And they come to an end with pretty much with the death of Gustavus Adolphus at the Battle of Lützen in 1632. But it's not until the Battle of Nordlingen in 1634 that the Habsburgs defeat the Swedes in battle. And once that happens, it's like a fantastic reversal of fortune all over again because now the Habsburgs are supreme once more and the Swedes are on the back foot and they retreat all the way up to North Germany so that they're just kind of holding their own in like a corner along the Baltic in like this corner of Germany in Pomerania. And there's like a desperate stand there and the Swedes are like their future is very much in doubt. And one of the things they have to do at this point is worry about the Poles, because we mentioned earlier on about how the Russians and the Swedes made a deal where Russia would attack Poland. That did happen, but the Russians were absolutely destroyed. So by 1634, the Russians had made a peace treaty with Poland, and Poland was now ready to get some revenge on Sweden for engineering this war against her. So now Sweden was facing a new war with Poland, and things were not looking very good. And its king was dead, so... With Gustavus Adolphus gone, Sweden was facing into a regency with the only heir being, I think she was not even in her teens at this stage, was uh, the young queen, Christina, who oh, was dear, Gust oh, dear, Gustavus oh, Adolphus's only heir. So yeah, how about that? Things turn around that quickly. 
And that is why you never put your king and your general army. You always put them to one side, keep them safe, make sure he has lots of babies. That's, yes, indeed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but so I think... I've been playing. I've been playing Crusader Kings two a bit, and uh, ah. one of the strategies is don't go out to battle until you have an heir. Well, that's a good idea. Yeah, I, and if Gustavus had kind of thought that through, then. It probably would have worked out a little bit better for him. But in actual fact, Gustavus Adolphus was only really establishing a kind of, you couldn't really call it a tradition because it wasn't necessarily deliberate, but something something crazy like the Swedish Empire would only last for about 100 years. It was like a, a brilliant flash in the pan of history. But the five or six kings that they did have, at least half of them, there was Gustavus Adolphus, Charles X, and Charles XII. Yeah, so those three, those three men all died due to circumstances relating to battle. Charles Gustavus Adolphus, as we saw, died on the battlefield. He was shot through the head. Charles X died from pneumonia after being outside during a siege that he was doing. And then Charles XII died in, I think it was 1718 or something. He was shot through the head as well. So battle followed Swedish kings everywhere. That was just the way it seemed to be. A kingdom of the sword. Yes, indeed. And it, it was founded by the sword and it was conquered by the sword as well. More specifically, the swords of pretty much everyone because everyone just dogpiled Sweden in the early 1700s. But anyway, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Okay, so we've brought the story up to 1634. The Swedes are defeated, the French are getting nervous, the Habsburgs are supreme, and everyone's kind of everyone's kind of looking at France, but not really kind of wondering whether or not the French are going to intervene. So tune in next time when we take this story up from 1635, when Cardinal Richelieu and King Louis XIII of France answer everyone's question. And yes, they do get involved. And from 1635, the war also stars France. I don't know why I paused for effect. Well, there. I think you wanted to say where's a totally different face because I think it really, it, it you could it encapsulate the first part of the war as having the same players in it, but now the war is totally turned on its head once mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. That know. would definitely be fair to say. In yeah. any case, Sean, thank you so much for joining me. And I have to say, it's been three years, but I don't really think we've lost a step or two. I mean, I think you have let me talk for a lot longer than you normally do, though. Well, normally I have a lot more to say, but I've learned that I actually have not as much to contribute. Does that make sense? <laughs> it's like my awareness of my own inability has, uh, has caught up with me. But I, 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 I appreciate that I'm learning a lot of what is being, uh, being told to me and that... I, I know a lot of what I have to say is anecdotal anyway, but mm. it's it's nice just to throw my two cents two cents my two cents in every now and then, uh, just to uh, I don't know spice it up. But uh, no, honestly, I'm really enjoying uh, listening to you yabber on about yes. uh, history and uh, <laughs> and to really lay down the facts. And yeah. I, I I will I'll I'll throw in a little bit more wit next time a little bit more. I, I know I mean we're going to be talking about the French the French and so. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll I'll prep a few jokes at their expense. Uh, oh, definitely uh, do that. As as far as I'm concerned, the the Dutch and, and the, the Danes and the the Swedes they're untouchable. They're brilliant, you know. <laughs> they brilliant. are. They they do make for great historical entertainment. That's for exactly, sure. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Well, I would just like to say. So I think we we finished the way we normally finish, which is to say, my name is Zach, and my name is Sean, and you've been listening to When Diplomacy Fails. Thanks. Thanks, and we'll be seeing you all soon.
<laughs> there was also I was listening to outtakes and it was like one of them was you being like no no I really want to do it and I was like are you sure and you're like yeah yeah I really want to do it this time and I was like okay go for it and then you're like back on the pod get down the get out damn it <laughs> I don't know I feel like if you said Siri listen to and then when diplomacy fails I'm sure she'd just start playing when diplomacy fails so inanimate objects they might mm. be getting there. They might. They might be on their way towards uh, listening to when diplomacy fails. Yeah. No, that that's that's true. Yeah. But what is that one? Alexa? Is that the? Is that the? Oh yeah. That's yeah. That's I bet. The... I bet she'd listen to the when diplomacy fails podcast if you told her about it. Like Alexa, yeah. play when diplomacy fails. I hate that podcast. Oh, well, <laughs> screw you. Yeah. Well, uh, you're gonna have to listen to it anyway. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's uh, you know. Dealing that's with the all these, way. yeah, that's the German way. Yeah, it's just so not the German way at all. But... <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I suppose it was the historical German way, and then they sort of got a little bit quicker at us, and uh, we call bit. that Brits, 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 Britskrieg. Oh, that's funny, Blitzkrieg. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Britskrieg is something else. I'm Britzkrieg sure. Britskrieg is probably what we'll call Brexit after a while. <laughs> You should copyright that. Britskrieg is pretty good. Yeah, nice, <laughs> nicely done. Something How do you pronounce that? Levers. Well, as Lever. now, I am not Le- the right person to ask him. Yeah, well, it looks like levers. If, I, but I'm fairly sure if the e's at the end, you'd say rays. Like, uh, yeah, they pronounce their e's in Europe. It's strange. But anyway, <laughs> I've heard it. Yeah. I've- We'll, we'll put it put it in a poll. How do you say it? Levers or livres? Uh, leave a leave a comment in our, our our Facebook group. Do that. Go ahead. We'll put a poll up there. Leave a ray a comment in our Facebook. <laughs> oh God. No, no. Please don't leave a ray a comment. <laughs> uh, oh dear. Okay. So this is the problem with us. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.